Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Later, we celebrate a moon landing anniversary, but not the one you might think. We also hear about a rover marathon on Mars and talk to a scientist working on Europe's latest mission to the Red Planet. Our guest is the author of a new book that tells the story of the most advanced flying machine ever built, the Space Shuttle. Roland White, welcome to Space Boffins. Now, your book, Into the Black, which is here to prove it, focuses for uh, a large part on the uh, first shuttle flight of, what, April 1981. And that was really an audacious flight in the whole history of space flight. Very much so. As far as Chris Craft was concerned, uh, the uh, the head of Johnson Space Centre, one of the two most audacious, bold flights that uh, he'd ever been involved in, the other being Apollo Eight, of course. I mean, it was the first and only time that a spacecraft has been launched, uh, either by the Russians or by the by the uh, the Americans or indeed the Chinese. That's never first been tested in unmanned form first, and I suppose it's going to be the only time that ever will happen. So, uh, yeah, not for nothing, uh, known as the uh, the boldest test flight in history. Well, on board that test flight, STS One was Commander John Young, who'd previously flown in Gemini Three, Gemini Ten. Apollo 10 and walked on the moon during Apollo 16. Alongside him, pilot Bob Crippen on his first space mission. And the flight lasted a total of two days and six hours. And here it is in two minutes, 20 seconds, including an extract from the superb day three wake-up call. Mr. Columbia, the altitude is too high for ejection seat use. Columbia, Houston, your goal for nominal ohms one, and for APU shutdown on time. Uh, from what we can see above wings, uh, tops and 
Flight of the first space shuttle. That uh, day three wake up probably the uh, well it depends what you see it. I think it's one of the best ever. I but, think it um, sounds like it's put together by Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah, good, good, well <laughs> it is yeah. extraordinary. It was put together Timmy by Mallet. <laughs> <laughs> local uh, Houston DJs Hudson and Harrigan. I'd quite like to know. I might do a bit of digging, find out what happened to them. Um, now that first flight, we got the impression there. All fantastic. All went really well, Roland. But actually, the shuttle, on its first flight, lost several protective tiles. And there were real concerns that the the heat shield was damaged. Uh, Absolutely. And um, they weren't really sure about the extent to which it might be. Nor uh, were they uh, sure when they discovered on orbit that there were tiles missing uh, what had caused it. And there's only so much you can test before you actually fly. And really, those first four space shuttle flights, the first one obviously being the, the, the most significant of those, were a way of demonstrating whether or not this system worked. And so when they got into uh, orbit and opened the payload bay doors and looked back from the, from the flight deck, and it was evident there were, there were a handful of tiles missing from the rocket pods, the orbital manoeuvring system pods, it was unclear whether or not that signified that there were tiles missing from a more important part of the heat shield. And so while during press conferences, NASA's tone was uh, fairly reassuring, uh, there was a frantic effort going on behind the scenes to try and discover, first of all, whether or not the tiles they knew were missing were going to cause problems on re-entry, but also whether or not there were tiles missing from another part of the airframe. And NASA themselves had no way of knowing that. And they used telescopes, didn't they, on the ground, this Department of Defence They did. I mean, they, they used, uh, and they were, uh, Gene Krantz in the um, uh, press conferences uh, spoke openly about the use of some telescopes, but not others. Um, so some telescopes, like the one in, um, on Big Sur in California, uh, was something they could talk about um, openly, and that was used to track ballistic missiles. The telescopes that there were in uh, uh, Florida and in Hawaii, they weren't able to talk about uh, openly. And those were ones which were used by the Air Force to uh, take pictures of, uh, of spacecraft on orbit. But something that, that was alluded to by journalists and from which they certainly uh, didn't talk about was the possibility that Columbia might be photographed by America's spy satellites. And that's what they did, was it? It was. There'd been uh, always a, an understanding, and in fact, um, as early as um, the, uh, the launch of Skylab, um, when uh, uh, American um, spy satellites were used to, to assess the damage to Skylab after uh, it was launched, uh, this capability had been a possibility. 
what hadn't been possible until the launch of Columbia was the uh, the transmission of real-time photographs digitally from space. And prior to that, they'd had to drop capsules from space, which were picked up over the uh, Pacific by the Air Force, flown back to Hawaii, then flown from Hawaii to Rochester, where Kodak would develop them. I mean, this, this process took days. But Columbia was only on orbit for three days, so that that wasn't going to work. And so this was the first time that uh, the digital spy satellite, the KH-11, uh, which had been developed in uh, around sort of in parallel uh, to the space shuttle itself, was used to take pictures of uh, a spacecraft on orbit. And they got those pictures and they were looked at in mission control on Sunday night. It's amazing hearing you say that there were issues with the tiles on the very first flight because I interviewed Eileen Collins for a... Uh, a space boffin special and she was the first woman commander of the space shuttle and she had to command the shuttle the first flight after the Columbia incident. That's right. And tiles came off on her flight too. So right from the beginning, I mean, that's a quite a design flaw, isn't it? It's certainly a design challenge, but it, in, in terms of whether or not it was a flaw, uh, I mean, it's debatable in that, uh, that if they were going to build a spacecraft like the shuttle, you, they had to look they at the alternatives. Tires, they had yes. to have a heat shield or of sorts. Yes. And the other possibilities, using metal shingles which buckled and, uh, and were impossible to sort of put together, or a single um, heat shield, ablative shield like uh, they'd used on Apollo, uh, was not going to be possible. This, if they were going to build something like the shuttle, was really the only possibility. And actually, they worked. This was something that... that it's often not given credit for that that um, system is it was more robust really than uh, perhaps the loss of Columbia suggests that it was. Well it makes it I suppose also makes it even more amazing that they went up with human beings without doing an unmanned flight first yeah. you know. It's I mean, it was interesting in that and and I think it was they were fitted to the early shuttles that they had ejector seats they did. which was possible when you had two crew because you had the commander and the pilot sitting next to each other it was like a aircraft but that was impossible when you had the others sort of tucked away no, in, the, in, the, in the lower deck. No those first four test flights had ejection seats and they were the same seats that they used the Air Force used in the um, the Blackbird spy plane and they were good to uh, you know 150,000 feet and beyond that uh, as we heard in the, the strand uh, digest of the flight they were good to a certain altitude and then not beyond that but what was uh, interesting from the point of view of Bob Crippen and John Young is that the, the, as far as they were concerned, there was no possibility of them pulling those uh, ejection seat handles and surviving because they'd, they'd been thrown straight into a sort of 300-foot-long rocket plume coming out of the, the solid rocket booster. So, they'd so, burnt to a crisp. So was the design fundamentally flawed? I mean, the, the whole idea of strapping a space plane to a massive tank of fuel with solid rocket boosters on the side and then even an ejector seats that would fling them out sideways into the exhaust. Well, it was certainly a compromise. It was not what NASA had first wanted or intended. They'd, they'd imagined having a completely reusable booster which uh, had the performance of the X-15 rocket plane but was the size of a 747. And possibly, and I've spoken to people during the research who've suggested that, thank God they didn't go down that route, or they'd never have flown anything. That was just too challenging a design to, to make work. 
So this was a compromise. It was a compromise based on what was possible. It was a compromise based on what was affordable. And it was also a compromise that worked. But you're right in saying that, um, you know, with respect to the, the things that NASA considered important for manned spaceflight, which was that you would never put your crew below something that, that could hurt them. You'd never use solid rocket boosters and you'd never fly uh, without having first flown an unmanned mission. They broke all three of those um, those rules. Now, you've written quite a few books on um, aviation, including the British. Vulcan bomber. So do you see the space shuttle more as a a space plane with the emphasis on plane? Uh, Certainly how I came to the story. And actually, uh, through coming to the space shuttle story, it, it's, it's generated an interest in all things space uh, for me. But, you know, I grew up in the 70s, sort of obsessed with Battle of Britain stories and Dan Busters and things like that. And and so the stories that I told Vulcan 607 or another one about um, HMS Ark Royal in the 70s, they were all generated by a love of aviation. And the shuttle was the first spacecraft that captured my imagination because I, I was born in 1970. And so I was too young for, for Apollo. I was 10 years old when the the shuttle launched and here it was this spacecraft that was a real spaceship you know it had a a crew the size of the Millennium Falcon you know it had wings it came back and landed on a runway then it then it was launched again and the whole thing was kind of Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers and and I hope that I've been able to bring that same sort of enthusiasm childish enthusiasm to to Into the Black as I have to those first books I mean I I hope it reads like a, a real life thriller. I love it. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's great. It, it sort of made me. I've always been quite critical of the of the space shuttle because of all these all these issues, all these issues with it, and and all the compromises along the way, and really the fact that it should have been built in parallel with the space station to have a purpose. And lots lots of issues. But it, reading it, I, I've got quite nostalgic. Oh, for it because when you see that little Soyuz you see the three cosmonauts astronauts sort of crammed up in this little Soyuz they can't bring anything back from space it's a big issue at the moment you can't bring anything back from mm. the from the space station and you look at the shuttle in comparison this amazing and it's when enormous you see the, craft when you see the shuttle people. as well in museums in America yeah, but, um, yeah that, that struck me that really gets you it's like wow actually this is pretty big that, and you see um, those tiles too and you see the the, the, the scorch marks mm on the underbelly of the one at the um, at Cape Canaveral it, it's it's much more impressive than you know you're used to seeing it on a small TV screen I suppose I mean I think that, that that was certainly an ambition for the book was that uh, as I say I, I uh, was amazed by it when it first launched it I, I followed it I mean I was taping on cassette the commentary on the BBC as it, it was uh, it was going and uh, I want to try and recapture that sense of uh, of amazement of, of awe I mean, partly because of its success uh, in that it did take things into space and bring them back, you know, over a, a, a long career, but also because of the, the loss of two shuttles as well. Um, its career was tragic, uh, was characterised either by tragedy or by a sort of over-familiarity and sort of meh, and, and, and it deserved oh, better it, than that. It, yeah. It's true, because yeah. at the, the time when I was working as a science correspondent for the BBC, I would cover space missions and... It got to the point where, uh, you know, a shuttle launch was just like, meh, yeah. meh, meh, not Well, even the thing is, they were always delayed. Unless it went wrong. Yeah. Unless yeah. it went and, wrong. And the problem was, they were always delayed. I yes. was there as a pundit, for example, yeah. on World, on BBC World TV, you know, sitting there like a lemon, talking as the countdown went, and then at two minutes, the clock just stopped. It's, 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 and it's then it's, it didn't start again TV. for three weeks, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, the, the thing, no. though, for me that, for me personally, was a slight disappointment with the shuttle. It's purely visual. Although it was exciting to see the parachutes open when it hit the runway, at the same time, I just felt 
couldn't you come up with something slightly more high tech than a than bunch the, than of parachutes. parachutes? True. Well, I mean, of course, the, the first few uh, flights didn't use parachutes. Uh, they just used the length of Edwards Air Force Base, Dry Lake. And for me, again, that was part of the appeal of the story. And, and Richard talked about uh, whether I'd come... Uh, Sue, sorry, you talked about whether I'd come to it through aviation. And I, I had, insofar as... For me, the shuttle represented the apex, the apogee, perhaps better expression in, in this company, of American post-war aviation development, you know, stretching right back to Chuck Yeager and the X-1 and the sound barrier over the Mojave Desert. You know, for, for a period of about 25 years, every new design that had sort of been wheeled out of American aerospace factories flew far, far, faster and higher than what had come before. I mean, it, it was a tremendously exciting, intense world where, where um, design and development and speed and, you know, these test pilots were fantastically glamorous. And, and in the mid-70s or so, that just came to a stop as uh, avionics and electronics became more important than the power of the engines and the shape of the airframe. But the shuttle was the last iteration of that. It was the, the fastest and highest flying machine that, that had ever been built. I'm just going to make you slightly jealous. Regular listeners to the podcast will know this, but you won't. Because I wrote to NASA as a teenager saying I wanted to be an astronaut, they sent me back letter of encouragement and they included the, a technical manual and this was in the 70s so it was way before it was uh, launched of their latest project and it was the space shuttle wow. so I have this lovely <laughs> 1974 manual from NASA about the, the space okay, shuttle and you're not having it no I have to, I have, to have, have a look at it <laughs> if we're on making people jealous I've landed the space shuttle I landed oh, the space shuttle in the, in, the, in the shuttle simulator <laughs> and I didn't crash I mean the but, first time I did did career off into the marsh but <laughs> No well, one died. Prince Charles, uh, as mentioned in the book, managed to crash it a number of times when he went to uh, to fly the sim. And I mean, even Fred Hayes, who uh, famously was on Apollo 13 and and flew a number of the uh, uh, atmospheric approach and landing tests off the back of the 747, he nearly crashed it on the, the last flight as they were trying to sort out the fly-by-wire Well, they did, they did say it, sort of, it flew like a brick, didn't uh, they? Well. They did. They, they, they did say it flew like a brick, yeah. and I, I think it did. But they also, it was very responsive. I mean, because it had been... All the controls have been designed by fighter pilots. Essentially, it did fly a bit like a fighter pilot. And you, you may have uh, landed it, Richard, but Joe Engel, um, who was the pilot on the uh, the commander on the second test flight, he barrel rolled the simulator. He managed to get the the simsups to uh, to tweak the controls so he could both land and take off and just do fly circuits. Uh, but he also uh, barrel rolled it as well. The, the other thing that the two of them, Joe and, and Dick Truly, would do as they flew together, was they, they realised that they could actually flick a switch, which meant both control sticks had the same authority. And so if one of them moved the stick to the left and the other moved the stick to the right in perfect harmony and carefully enough, nothing would happen and keep flying straight and level. And Joe could then say to the, the guys on the, the desk, look, I've got, I'm, I'm trying to fly full left and nothing's happening. What's going on? Nothing's broken. And, and, th- and actually, this was the way in which they worked out how to fly uh, those approaching landing, landing tests so, and squeeze so much into a really short two-minute flight was by, by flying it together and coordinating um, the stick and, and rudder movements on either side of the cockpit, almost like a ballet. I mean, it was, it was incredible what they squeezed into those short flights. Well, uh, Roland, do stay with us because in a, a moment, an awkward moment on Apollo 10. But this is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. 
You can get in touch with Space Boffins on Twitter and Facebook and all our past podcasts, including the extended interview I did with Shuttle Commander Eileen Collins. They're all on the Naked Scientist website. And if you can't wait another month for the next Space Boffins, we've made a series of audio essays for BBC Radio 3 on interstellar travel. It's called Another Giant Leap. It's presented by, you might recognise a few names here from our podcast guests, Stuart Clark. Rachel Armstrong, Cameron Smith and sci-fi author Stephen Baxter and you can find them all on the Radio 3 website. Now if you're eating you might want to spool forward a minute or so because we've got a recording to play you from another John Young mission, Apollo 10 a dress rehearsal for the moon landing. Now this 1969 incident concerns an issue with the primitive toilet system on board which involved plastic bags and tape and they didn't always seal properly. Uh, so in the capsule alongside Young we have Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan and an unwelcome visitor. Now what's happening? Oh, who did it? Who did what? what? Who did it? Give me, a, give me a Where did that come from? Give me a napkin quick. There's a turf floating. I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I, I don't think it's one of mine. Uh, but mine was a little more sticky than that. Still on the way. God almighty. <laughs> what do you see? Nothing. That's enough for me. It's <laughs> the Apollo 10 loose turd incident. Um, there is more of that. There are actually two two yeah. clips. I, I did um, put the transcript up on the Space Boffins Facebook it's, page it's, it's uh, a couple of yeah. you know weeks ago, and and you read it and and you oh. just and they're all denying it. The funny thing is, yeah. is that they're all denying it was them. You know, wow. um, I have to just thank the uh, the oh. producers of uh, the Last Man on the Moon for providing uh, oh, that yeah. clip. Um, and the film about uh, Gene Cernan uh, gets its US release on. 26th of February and it should be released in other countries later in the year yeah the um it's not surprising they didn't publicize that much at the time (laughs) right well uh, moving swiftly on Europe's latest Mars mission will launch in a few weeks ExoMars 2016 a joint venture between the European Space Agency and the Russian Space Agency Roscosmos consists of the trace gas orbiter and an entry descent and lander demonstrator now the orbiter carries four scientific instruments including a high resolution camera called Cassis it's its principal investigator, Nicholas Thomas, is a British professor of experimental physics at the University of Bern in Switzerland. And being the international world of science, naturally I caught up with him to talk about Cassis on the streets of Rome. Well, I'd like to call it the second best camera system that's ever flown to Mars. Why the second best? Because the best was an instrument that the Americans built called HiRISE, which gave 25 centimetres per pixel observations of the surface of Mars. I mean, basically, you're looking at a rock no wider than your shoulders uh, from 250 kilometres above the surface of Mars. So HiRISE takes something to beat. But we didn't have enough mass on the spacecraft, and and the the volume that we had available uh, was much smaller. And so we designed an instrument that was more compact. It's not quite as high a resolution, but it's got more capability in terms of colour and stereo capabilities. And what do you hope to do that hasn't been done by orbiters around Mars already? Because there seem to have been so many of them. Well, there's a lot. I mean, it's, it's, and there's, it, some of them are still there, obviously. Oh, absolutely, a high-rise included. I mean, there's fair, it's a fair question. One of the things that, that we're looking to use Cassis for is to look at dynamic phenomena. One of the things about the orbiter, the trace gas orbiter, 
is that it varies in terms of time of day. What that means that we can do is that we can look and see how phenomena change during the day. So, for example, we might be able to see how ice condenses onto the surface in the mornings, but yet it is gone by the afternoons. This is particularly important for looking at at what we think is liquid water on the surface. Now, there's a a structure which we've seen using high-rise. These structures have got a name. They're called recurring slope lineae. As usual, scientists like to invent a name which uh, confuses the general public. Say, you know. it's, it's not a catchiest <laughs> of titles, is it? Yeah, but that's one of the things that we like to do. You know, That's what scientists are supposed to do, right? RSL, these lineae, they're dark features which appear during spring on Mars. They get longer with time. They fade during autumn. And then the next year, they repeat. So they go through a seasonal cycle. Always in the same place always the same type of structure. Now, the thought is that these are connected to melting of a sort of a a water-salt mixture. The thing is that with high-rise, we only ever observe these things late afternoon. And what we're kind of expecting is that we should be seeing these things growing during the day. In order to do that, Cassis can observe these areas at 8 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock. Okay, it takes a little bit of time and several orbits to do that. But in principle, we can look at these types of targets as a function of time of day. And, so and it's almost like a, looking at a seasonal lake mm. at different times. Yes. In that you're seeing it larger at some times of the day, at some times of the year, and yeah. smaller at others. Yeah. These tongues of material, these lineae, and they're called lineae because they're line-like, there's no doubt that they extend during the season and then they, they seem to fade away into the background again as you move towards autumn and winter. And that's so the if that's seasonal lake, really, it should be seasonal river, shouldn't it, if there are these it's lines? Like, it's, li- it's rather like a rather like a sort of a little dribble of water yeah. that running down on a sandy slope. This is something new for Mars, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that we put in science, and uh, we had a, had a science paper about it. There it's was almost a... like the canals, isn't it? The, the, the <laughs> sort of sci-fi thing, seeing the canals. Yeah, yeah. The, the, and there is, there is a little bit about that, because, you know, we're not, we're not 100% sure that it's water. We don't, we've never got a really a good signature of a water absorption line from these areas, which makes life a little bit difficult. And could Cassis do that, or any of the other instruments that will be on ExoMars? Unfortunately not. What we can do is simply to try to monitor these things and to see if they're continuing and try and look for more of these areas. But um, unfortunately, we don't have a, a high enough resolution infrared spectrometer to be on the spacecraft to be able to attack exactly that problem. Which sort of sets you up for another mission, effectively, doesn't it? Unfortunately for the taxpayer, perhaps, <laughs> yes. That's fascinating. That's yeah. really interesting. It's good stuff. And, uh, you know, it's not the only thing that we can do with Cassis. It's, one, it's just one of uh, the lists of things where we can look at, for example, at monitoring how the wind is influencing the surface, on, again, on diurnal timescales, following dust devils over time and so on, looking at the evolution of the, uh, of the polar ice caps over longer periods of time. Cassis is, uh, it provides a good complement to the instruments that have gone in the past. And although we can't beat high-rise in terms of resolution, uh, we can certainly complement it in terms of colour and the stereo capability that we have. Cassis, I think of a BlackBerry or a liqueur involving yeah. Blackberries. Yeah. What does it stand for? Cassis is the Colour and Stereo Scientific Imaging System. We made it up. I just happen to like Cassis. I like Kia Royale. 
doesn't? Who doesn't? And there's also a cassis near Marseille that makes an excellent rosé, actually, from that area. So, and there's some nice pictures of me, which are not going to go anywhere near Facebook, drinking some of that stuff. So it's kind of <laughs> Nicholas Thomas in charge of the, uh, I think, Black Current, actually, rather than Blackberry, Cassis camera on XMRs, currently due for launch in March. So European, isn't it? Naming it after an alcoholic beverage. Well, that, that's what we <laughs> You're Europeans... Not gonna, the Americans would never do well, that. Well, that's what they? we Europeans do better than the Americans, actually. Well, I, We're better at drinking. I'm a whole lot more low rent than, than him. I, when I think of Cassis, I think of what you add to a snake bite to turn it into a purple nasty. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that, that, but that ages you, doesn't it? Because yeah, probably, that, that, yeah. that Everything ages me now. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And uh, obviously uh, it should go with juice. Yes, Jupiter's ju- juice. Which is the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, Explorer. which doesn't even work. No, it doesn't make any sense. I, and, and, when and you remember- get a spacecraft that's got some instrument called a margarita, then I'll be really... <laughs> then we know we're there. <laughs> well, I was wondering, because they said... I remember we interviewed um, Andrew Coates, his uh, principal investigator yeah. on juice, and he said they, they named it after a few gin and tonics. And I think that actually you could <laughs> call not. it... You could call it gin. So it had to be J-I-N. And it could be Jupiter Icy Navigator. So I thought would that would be You'd much have better. to have tonic. There would have to be some, some other tonic, instrument yes, that would work tonic, with it. Called yeah, a, yeah uh, suggestions on a postcard or a Twitter, please. Yes, thank you very much. That. OK, in two years' time, Europe and Russia will launch their second ExoMars mission, and this will carry a rover. It'll have a lot to live up to. NASA's Opportunity rover has just celebrated its 12th anniversary on Mars, and it's still going strong. John Grant, a geologist at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., is one of the senior scientists on NASA's Mars rover missions. I asked him what he thought about the fact that Opportunity was still working. Uh, Astonished uh, maybe five years ago. At this point, it's just, you know, beyond belief. It's an incredibly capable spacecraft, having run the distance of more than a terrestrial marathon uh, at this point on Mars, when its goal was to, you know, go on order of a kilometre or less. Give us a sense of, of its achievements then. What's it, what has it done? Opportunity and, of course, its twin sister Spirit, which stopped operating several years ago, both were sent to Mars to try to understand the role of water in shaping the surface. And both were very successful in that regard, Spirit finding evidence of a ancient environment where steam was occurring around a, a volcanic center in Gusev Crater that may have been akin to the kinds of things you might see where fumaroles or steam vents are found around Hawaii or maybe even in Yellowstone. For Opportunity and Meridiani Planum around the other side of the planet, we found a long history of water that has contributed to shaping the surface. It looks like it was sort of a a dry-ish environment where it must have rained or water puddled on the surface occasionally, uh, and we had an active groundwater system. Uh, And those rocks formed the goal of our investigations during the first years of the experiment, But for the past three to four years, we've been on the rim of a very ancient crater called Endeavor. And now we're looking at the role of water in shaping Mars really in the ancient past, even earlier uh, than the rocks formed that we were first looking at. Now, water is is the key here. And and also there's recent evidence from, from Curiosity as well. Can we? Is it fair to say there was absolutely water flowing on the surface of Mars? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, absolutely. Um, with Curiosity, we see evidence of deposits coming off the north rim of Gale Crater that could only have been deposited by uh, water draining across the surface and forming a deposit, much like we might see in Death Valley here on the Earth. Uh, it's called an alluvial fan. 
Uh, and we also see evidence that, that that water then puddled in the center of the crater and created a lake. Uh, we see evidence of shallower water puddling in uh, in Meridiani Planum where opportunity is. And we see, based on analogy with those deposits and using our orbital assets, evidence from orbit that, in fact, uh, water has flowed and puddled on the surface elsewhere as well. Uh, and what sort of time scale are we talking about? Can you say how long ago the last water flowed? Most of the water looks to have been around sort of in the in the three and a half to four and a half billion year period. So a very, very long time ago and tells us that 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 early Mars was a very different place than it is today. Everyone's excited about water because water on Earth means life. Is there necessarily a connection, particularly as we talk about so long ago that water last flowed on the red planet? Well, I don't think it's necessarily a connection. But as you say, uh, where we find water on the Earth, we find life. So there's definitely a a good path to follow there, and that's one that we are taking uh, now that we understand more and more about uh, how and when water occurred. As we learn more and more about the past climate and how clement it may have been, we can start to pinpoint the locations where the rocks might best record evidence of past life. And the 2020 rover, which will be launched in 2020, will in fact start to probe a little bit in more detail at the rocks, build on the sort of habitability results from Curiosity, and start to look for things that we call biosignatures, uh, a next step towards understanding whether there was ever life on Mars. And what about the ExoMars program? Because that's the European program between now and the, the 2020, Mars 2020. You've got the ExoMars 2016, which is just going to have a lander and an orbiter. Then 2018, you've got a rover, and this will have a drill fitted to it capable of drilling into the surface. Yeah, we have a drill on Curiosity, but it doesn't go very deep. Typically, as we look for outcrops where they've been eroding uh, quickly so that when we sample those rocks with Curiosity, in fact, we can get uh, material that may not have been super exposed to the sort of harsh environment of Mars. ExoMars really has an advantage there because the drill can go down about a meter and in so doing can get much deeper down into the surface, go to one of these fresh outcrops that I described, dig down up to a meter with its drill, and hopefully sample some material that hasn't been much altered by that Martian environment. So really might make a good stride towards uh, understanding the, the past history of Mars and the possibility of whether there was life. John Grant, a senior geologist on NASA's Mars rover missions. And um, I hate to, I know Americans normally do things bigger, but I'm pretty sure our drill is bigger than that. I think it goes down further than one metre. Anyway, we're going to celebrate another anniversary now that's quietly passed most people by, but not by space boffins. 50 years ago, in February 1966, the Soviet Union achieved the first controlled soft landing on the moon when Luna 9 touched down in the ocean of storms. The robotic probe sent back pictures and proved that the lunar surface was solid and not formed of some sort of dusty quicksand. A model of the Lunar 9 probe is currently on display at London's Science Museum as part of the Cosmonauts exhibition. And as videos played around us, I asked space curator Doug Millard how the Lunar 9 landing was treated at the time. It certainly made headlines, and as far as we can tell, it was uh, deliberately so. The image that was transmitted back to Earth was on a frequency that could be picked up readily. Jodrell Bank, the radio telescope at, uh, in Cheshire in England, did so, and the Daily Express, I believe, got hold of it. And these pictures from the lunar surface 
were transmitted around the world, and uh, I'd imagine that was quite deliberate. Now, at the same time, 1966, things were ratcheting up on both sides in terms of getting a man on the moon. At what point was the Soviet Union at in terms of reaching that goal? Well, we tend to think of Project Apollo, of course, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, uh, touching down on the moon in 69. Kennedy started that programme way back in 61. Now, the Soviets didn't really start to get their act together for another three years, and then it wasn't until the end of 1965 that uh, the late chief designer, Sergei Korolev, was put in charge of the Soviet moon landing programme, and within days of that, he had died. So uh, they were intending to get to the moon, but they were, they were having to catch up. And they were developing this N1 rocket, which, I mean, it was an extraordinary machine if it had ever worked. The N1 was a massive beast. It was uh, the same height pretty much as the Apollo Saturn V. Uh, was designed to do the same sort of thing, get uh, a lander up onto the lunar surface, another spacecraft in orbit around the moon. Uh, but it went about it in a quite different way. One of the problems was that the first stage had 32 engines compared to the Saturn V's five, and that first stage was never ground-tested with all 32 engines firing. They went straight to flight status, and when they ran into the problems, uh, it just contributed to the challenges the Soviet programme was facing. Well, although the N1 never launched successfully, the rest of the hardware for a Soviet moon landing was developed, tested and even flew. Taking pride of place in the Cosmonauts exhibition, next to the car-sized Lunacod rover, the towering five-metre-high Russian moon lander. Made up of a bulbous cabin attached to four hefty legs, the lander was only designed for a single cosmonaut, most likely the world's first spacewalker, Alexei Leonov. Peering through that, uh, I like to call it the windscreen, this, this circular window angled down towards the lunar surface, you can picture Leonov controlling his descent and he had even less time than Neil Armstrong had in order to find somewhere to land. So it would have been even more dangerous perhaps than Apollo. And presumably they had thought all this through, they'd developed a spacesuit suitable for the moon, they'd worked out what Leonov would have done on the moon. I mean, he wouldn't have been able to do a great deal, I imagine, and he certainly wouldn't have been able to fit much rock back in that, uh, that capsule with him. Well, rather like Apollo 11, the first landing would have been a pretty quick affair. Get some samples and back you go. The spacesuit, the Kretschet spacesuit, was designed especially for uh, the cosmonauts to, to walk on the lunar surface. Alas, never used. Interestingly, uh, alongside we have something else that was launched successfully to the moon, the lunar hod. That was originally part of the manned programme. So how would that have worked? You'd have the rover and a person on the surface. Leonov, for example, would land in this large lander. Previously, though, an unmanned version would have also landed some distance uh, from Leonov's on the lunar surface. That would be used in the eventuality of some sort of failure on Leonov's lander. The lunar hod would also have been launched prior to Leonov's landing in order to act as a beacon to help guide in Leonov and also to be used in the event of that emergency by Leonov to drive to the other backup lander and thereby return safely to the Earth. So lunar hod originally was all part of the Soviet manned lunar programme. 
how different, this is a very speculative question for a historian, how different would the world be if it was Leonov as the first man on the moon rather than Neil Armstrong? Well, if Leonov had been uh, first on the moon, the, um, the flag would have been different, but I guess it would have still wobbled about for all the reasons we know, because once you touch a flag on the moon, it doesn't stop wobbling for a long time. So uh, I think you'd have had a wobbling hammer and sickle. And so you would have exactly the same conspiracy theories that we never landed on the moon if it had been a Russian or, or an American. Absolutely, yes, it would be all the same all over again. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, Space curator at London Science Museum, Doug Millard, and the Cosmonauts exhibition is on until the 13th of March. Uh, I should mention that although the Russians haven't yet landed anyone on the moon, the uh, two Lunokhod rover missions of 1970 and 1973 were a success, and the Soviet Union also managed to bring back moon rock with three successful robotic sample return missions. So, I mean, if you look at it, maybe Russia didn't really lose the, the race to the moon. They certainly did it a different way. And I think what's interesting about that is they came up with a completely di- a different way. I mean, they had a lander, but they had the idea of two landers and a, ro- and a robot to connect the two if there was a problem. They did everything in, in parallel, a sort of almost like a parallel world. But, um, Roland, that the same cannot be said for their version of the space shuttle, which, the uh, Buran, which, I mean, it, it looks, it's pretty much a rip-off, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think there was some... Uh... Uh, disappointment uh, amongst um, Soviet rocket engineers and, and aerospace designers that that was the case. Um, they'd had they developed a space plane of their own in the seventies and even had uh, a small cadre of cosmonauts who were expecting to fly that at some point, and that was called Spiral. And uh, when the decision was taken as a direct response to the Americans' development of the space shuttle uh, to uh, build a Soviet equivalent and really in, in nothing more than the ultimate case of keeping up with the Joneses, they simply copied the, the, the mould shape, the plan for the shuttle. And the, the reason for that was, as one of the administrators said to, to the uh, design, designers, the Americans are not dumber. And they spent a fortune spying on what the Americans were doing and getting hold of uh, information. And a lot of it actually was released in any case because NASA's releases everything. It has to, yeah. yeah. They just thought, let's use American research. And they saved themselves a fortune uh, by doing that but um no that and of course they did fly it once uh, and unmanned again but there were a few refinements to that that soviet shuttle in that it didn't use solid rocket boosters it used liquid rocket boosters nor did the shuttle itself buran have rocket uh, engines in in the back it only had sort of orbiting maneuvering uh, rockets but um no it, it was a incredible achievement by the soviets even notwithstanding the, the help they had from the american research Roland White, thank you very much for joining us. And your book on the American Space Shuttle, Into the Black, is out on March the 10th, obviously available now to pre-order. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. We're produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and with a grant from the Royal Astronomical Society. And next month, I'll be reporting from the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop in, get this, Chattanooga. Uh, and if you're going, do say hello. Uh, otherwise, uh, do get in touch through uh, Facebook and Twitter. And thanks so much for listening. We'll end with an extract from Apollo 14, the third mission to the moon to commemorate moonwalker ed mitchell who died a few days ago on the eve of the 45th anniversary of the landing 114 hours 22 minutes after leaving earth alan shepherd stepped onto the moon four minutes later he was joined by ed mitchell 
Following the tradition of two previous missions, Shepard and Mitchell planted the flag in the lunar soil. Okay, Bruce, look okay? Uh, yeah, that's a good sight. 